This week on Geek Explained, with the announcement of DC's Green Lantern coming to HBO Max, we're taking a look at the most important sector patrolled by the Green Lantern Corps. So join us as we rank every GL from Sector 2814. Yep, all of them. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is all about the Green Lantern Corps, specifically those hailing from Sector 2814. That is, of course, the sector that we reside in on Earth. Uh, this sector has had a lot of Green Lanterns to guard it, and today we're going to be ranking all of them. Also, of course, uh, we are hopping right back onto Arrow Season 8, the final season for this week's weekly review, and after that we will have this week's comics countdown. But first, before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Alright guys and dolls, so uh, again, kind of a light week when it comes to news, not a whole lot going on, but the stuff that uh, we are talking about today, I'm pretty excited about if I'm honest. So uh, of course we have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. So far, no comics news, no miscellaneous news, so we're going to hop right on into film news because we have just one piece of film news, and that is the announcement that the next Star Trek film may have just found its writer and director, and they're both the same guy. Uh, they have, right now, rumor is, and it's being reported on a couple different uh, sites, that Noah Hawley is going to be uh, writing and directing the next Star Trek film and also producing alongside J.J. Abrams, who has kind of been the herald of uh, modern sci-fi with both the reboot of Star Trek as well as kind of being the figurehead for the latest trilogy of Star Wars. Uh, if you're not familiar with Noah Hawley's work, he's best known for being the showrunner on Legion as well as Fargo. So... He's got a lot of genre experience underneath his belt. Uh, this kind of flies in the face of a lot of reports this past year that Quentin Tarantino would be directing the next Star Trek film. From what we see so far on reports, Tarantino is still working on an R-rated Star Trek film, but it might be kind of away from the current canon of Abrams' Star Trek, which... It's rumored that Holly's uh, film is going to fall under. So I'm interested. I really, really dug Legion. And even though Fargo wasn't really for me, um, I can't stress enough how good 
Holly is at taking genre storytelling and making it widely acceptable for modern audiences. So I'm really excited about it. Now hopping on over to TV news. TV news has uh, some some stuff I'm pretty excited about. So first off, we're going to be talking about Crisis because we have to and because it is imminent. It's only a couple weeks away. And we got some more uh, photos released for the press ramp up heading into the crossover featuring our three supermen that being tom welling tyler hoechlin and brandon routh now tyler hoechlin is our current we'll say uh, new 52 style superman in the supergirl tv show uh tom welling classic superman from the smallville tv show and brandon routh who's going to be playing the kingdom come version of superman check out our episode on kingdom come last week if you haven't checked it out yet it is this month's geek explained spotlight and uh it's pretty exciting it's pretty exciting just seeing all three of them in official press releases uh it does kind of look like uh tom wellings clark kent seems to be some form of retired or at least uh is living back on the farm in smallville so i'm not sure exactly what their plan is for him but uh it it's just going to be great seeing three Supermen in one place. And then we also got a big bomb dropped with the first, uh, I think, really anywhere that we've seen of Kevin Conroy's Batman, who has been uh, the focus of another of the press release photos. And it looks like he's going to be Kingdom Come Batman. Uh, first of all, I want to say I called it. Uh, I called it last week. Um... I'm pretty excited about this. The photo that we see does show him with a very similar, um, uh, I don't want to say robotic, but metal brace that was used to kind of assist him after his back was broken in the Kingdom Come storyline. So I think it's a pretty safe bet that he is going to be playing that version of Batman and that we may see some crossover between Brandon Routh's Superman and Kevin Conroy's Batman. Really excited about that. Should be good. I'm, uh, I'm stoked. Every single new thing that gets released about Crisis just makes me more hyped for it and i cannot wait for this crossover to start and then finally we got some concept art for uh falcon and the winter soldier which is going to be dropping on uh august of next year on the disney plus streaming service they have officially started uh production as well we've seen some set photos of a short-haired bucky walking around on the street and the concept art that has been released kind of unveils the new Bucky and and uh, Falcon suits that they're going to be wearing over the course of this show. They look great. Falcon finally looks comics accurate. Really, really excited for Anthony Mackie as uh, this is kind of going to be his stepping stone into his Captain America suit. So I'm looking forward to this. Uh, we also got the clearest image that we've seen so far of Zemo with his purple sock ski mask which i am stoked about really excited uh we also got to see some concept art of the u.s agent which is going to be uh one of the main antagonists in this show so overall really exciting time to be a superhero tv fan and i cannot wait to see both of these properties crisis and falcon and the winter soldier drop 
to be viewed. So that is going to do it for this week's news. Like I said, short news segment, a little bit light on news, but I'm sure that the next big news story is just around the bend. But that does bring us to this week's main course, the entree, if you will, in which we are going to rank every single Sector 2814 Green Lantern ever. So, Green Lantern. There's a lot of them. In the ever-expanding scope of the DC Universe, cosmic, huge, universe-spanning, multiverse-spanning expanse that is the greater galaxy, uh, the one constant throughout space is the Green Lantern Corps. Now, the Green Lantern Corps are a peacekeeping organization that have one Green Lantern per sector. We don't know exactly how many sectors there are, but there's a lot of them. And so the Green Lanterns are stretched fairly thin while they're trying to protect their given sector. Now, a sector can encompass one planet, two planets, a hundred planets. It all depends on the size of the planets and I guess how they divvied up the sectors. But the most important, I think, arguably, the most interesting sector is, of course, Sector 2814. That's the sector that we are in. That's a sector that most of the tales of the Green Lanterns kind of happens in. And within the history of Sector 2814, there have been, I would say, you know, three or four very notable Green Lanterns. We're talking about the big heavy hitters. But I took the time because I wanted to rank all of the Green Lanterns from Sector 2814, and originally, when I was putting this list together, I was looking at, you know, five, six, maybe seven uh, Green Lanterns that I could rank, but as I started to dive into the history of this sector and the history of DC Comics and the Green Lantern Corps as a whole, I found out there's a lot There have been a lot of Green Lanterns of Sector 2814. Uh, How many, you ask? 17. There there have been at least 17 unique Green Lanterns for Sector 2814. And um, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. So I took the time, researched all of these characters, and made sure that I knew who they were, what they were doing, and how they became the Green Lantern. Um, And I'm not going to lie to you. Some of them are very one note, but I think for a complete uh, 2814 ranking list, you got to have all of them. So uh, I'm going to be ranking them Best to worst, 17 to 1. Uh, real quick, before I dive into the actual um, rankings, quick, just 
want to put it out there, so I put it to rest so that no one is uh, asking the question throughout the list. Honorable mention goes to Alan Scott, the original Green Lantern in DC Comics lore. Uh, the reason that he doesn't qualify for the list is because he was never officially part of the Green Lantern Corps. Uh, he's been an honorary member in the past, but he didn't technically get his ring from the Green Lantern Corps. Um, I say technically, and I'm going to explain it a little bit later with one of the characters on the list, but um, he was never officially designated as Green Lantern of Sector 2814, so he can't be on the list. But of course, Alan Scott is iconic. Uh, that red jumpsuit with the purple cape is just so bad it's good and he as a character has gone through so many changes and he is one of the most iconic green lanterns to ever take up the mantle so with that out of the way we're going to jump right into number 17 which is waverly sayer who is waverly sayer good question um, I saw this name on the list and I just, I had no idea. I've never heard of this before, but apparently Waverly Sayer was a pilgrim during the founding of America and he got the ring from unknown circumstances. Uh, through my research, I didn't really find a, uh, a reason that he got the ring. There was just a blinding flash of green light, and there he was. Uh, so it's kind of lame. You don't really see him participate in anything. It's just kind of rolling through the history of the Green Lanterns um, on Earth. But there he is, and he is in the last place. Next up is... Green Lantern Laham or Laham or Lahayam, I don't know, uh, at number 16. Uh, I'm going to call him Laham. Uh, Laham was the Green Lantern before Waverly Sayre, and when he died defending his world, a separate world in Sector 2814, his ring passed on to Waverly Sayre for whatever reason. Uh, the reason he beats out Waverly Sayre is because he actually did something, he protected his world. We don't know what Waverly Sayre did. Uh, next up at number 15, we have Donna Parker, another human Green Lantern. There have been a lot more than I think a lot of people are aware of, but Donna Parker was a housewife in the mid-50s and was given the opportunity to become Green Lantern. I think this is really interesting because the Guardians were a little concerned at humanity discovering and, um, I guess, inventing atomic warfare. So the Green Lanterns were watching Earth, and they're like, whoa, they have nuclear weapons now. We're not sure how we feel about that. So we are going to appoint a Green Lantern specifically to Earth to keep an eye on the development of atomic and nuclear weapons and to make sure they stay in check. So they show up to Donna Parker's home, uh, who uh, recently had a child that she's caring for, and they give her a ring. They offer her a ring. Uh, she uses the power for a little bit just to see what it's all about and um, initially she's pretty taken aback by the uh, power that the Green Lantern ring has but ultimately she decides to give it up she says that it's more important to her to be a mother and the Green Lantern Corps leaves so uh, I think that's super interesting and I think that 
that could be a really cool idea if we wanted to do a story that's like a period piece where Donna Parker does take the Green Lantern ring that's set in like the mid 50s and it's basically her versus you know the Red Scare and communism and the threat of nuclear warfare I think it'd be really really interesting and I think that'd be really cool so next up we have at number 14 Zhang Li who was living in China during uh, 660 AD and he is the canonically first Green Lantern to come from Earth. He's the first human Green Lantern, and um, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much all we really know about him. Um, he was fighting against a horde when the random green light shone in front of him, and it gave him a ring. Uh, his ring seemed to have a little bit more shared properties with uh, Alan, Scott's, Alan Scott Starheart. I don't know if there's a correlation between that, but I think that's pretty interesting. So he is the first Green Lantern to uh, be from Earth, the first human lantern, and um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, number 13, we have Starcare. Um, it's spelled, <laughs> it's spelled S-T-A-R-K-A-O-R, -R, so it's like Starkower, or Starkower, um, I don't know how to pronounce that, but, uh, the reason that he is at number 13 is because he has a very important distinction, and that is that he was the predecessor to Abin Sur. He was a, I believe he was a member of Abin Sur's race, the Ungarians, or Ungarans, um, and he gave his life in the service of the Green Lantern Corps, and his ring passed to a fellow member of his species, that being Abin Sur. So even though we don't really know a whole lot about him, and he hasn't done a whole lot, him being kind of the first that we can track in the line that eventually leads its way to uh, Hal Jordan, I think is a pretty important, uh, pretty important and notable feat. And we did see him briefly during the Blackest Night event, where he came out and he attacked other lanterns. So Again, don't know a whole lot about him, but just the fact that he was the man who passed the ring that would eventually be passed to Hal Jordan, I think is pretty significant, pretty important. Next up at number 12, we have Anya Zavenlovich. Now, Anya has a really interesting story. So Anya Zavenlovich was a Russian astronaut during the space race between Russia and the U.S. during the, uh, during the 60s, and during a test flight, sending her out to a, basically like a, um, it's, it was one of the first flights, the first manned Russian flight to take place, like to send them into the atmosphere. Uh, her, her vessel, her ship malfunctioned and lost contact with the Soviets. And so they just assumed that she had died and that the experiment was a failure. All was not so, though, because uh, Anya's ship malfunctioned and put her essentially into cryosleep. So she was put into cryosleep for right around 35 years and then was awoken during a conflict between Kyle Rayner and another alien species that was attacking the Earth and happened to find its way onto this uh, spaceship, onto this vessel. Uh, Kyle was able to wake her up 
and allowed her and several other characters that he had kind of recruited to join his Green Lantern Corps. This was back during the 90s. Uh, Kyle was still in probably like year two or year three of his Green Lantern career. And at this point, he was the only Green Lantern. He was still known as the Torchbearer. And he was in the midst of trying to figure out how to rebuild the Green Lantern Corps. So we thought, I'm going to take these four people who have lived extraordinary lives and give them a power ring to that I you know, have generated from my power ring, and I'm going to allow them to start to become the new Green Lantern Corps. We're going to start here. Um, however, um, during this very brief stint, uh, even though Anya was very skilled, they were soon attacked and ambushed by a character called Magan. Not the Magan you're thinking of. This was a character who Kyle had also gifted a temporary Green Lantern ring uh, to begin building his Green Lantern Corps, who had gone mad with power and proceeded to try to kill the other members out of jealousy and basically wanting to steal their rings. He was defeated by the combined strength of Anya and Kyle, but following this, Kyle realized he wasn't ready to build a core. He didn't know what went into it, so he took all of the rings back, including Anya's, and basically kind of sent her on her way. Uh, Anya banded with the two remaining members of their ragtag uh, Green Lantern squad and created a peacekeeping organization of their own called the core who would go around and kind of solve crime across the galaxy we haven't really heard a lot of her since then but i think it's pretty cool that she was a uh, basically had a soviet captain america story where she was frozen in service to her country woke up you know 30 some odd years later and was recruited into a battle and i would i would be interested to see her again along with the core so at number 11, we have a fan favorite, and that is Yalan Gore. Yalan Gore was a Green Lantern and was the Green Lantern of Sector 2814 in the 10th century. So we're talking anywhere between 900 AD to 1000 AD. And he was interesting. He came from a race of uh, pink dragon humanoid looking creatures and came to Earth during its development and specifically encountered Earthlings during the boom of ancient Chinese civilization. They revered him as a god and he he kind of, um, he protected them from an oncoming threat that seemed to take advantage of the yellow impurity in Green Lantern Rings. To combat this, Yalan Gore uh, basically petitioned to the Green Lantern Corps to release him from that yellow impurity, thereby taking away that weakness and allowing him to defeat it. Green Lantern Corps, against their better judgment, decided to do that, and Elon uh, Gore was able to defeat this yellow uh, personification of fear. However, uh, purging the yellow impurity from his ring drove Elon Gore into a state of uh, power-hungry madness i guess would be the best word uh where he decided that he would now be a god to this uh, burgeoning human civilization and ruled ancient china with an iron fist until um 
it was realized that for all the powers of the Green Lanterns, for all of his uh, numerous abilities of flight, of uh, materialization, and all of that construction, um, Green Lanterns are susceptible to spears. So, um, Yolan Gur was fatally killed by the by his subjects who revolted against him and killed him with spears that were thrown at him. Basically, he flew up into the atmosphere to get away, uh, but proceeded to die in the atmosphere and fell to Earth, both him and his Green Lantern power battery burning up in the atmosphere and mixing with some of these spears that supposedly had some kind of... Uh, magical properties and they all kind of blended together into this green meteorite that crashed on earth and became the star heart so that is how uh, alan scott is kind of um i guess retconned into possibly being part or having his star heart have a link to the original green lantern core but i think it's pretty cool that we had a that we had this like dragon-esque emperor style uh, Green Lantern. And you did see him in the Justice League film that may or may not have ever happened. Um, where he was part of the banding together of Earth's forces against Steppenwolf and Darkseid's armies. So pretty cool character. Uh, and of course he does rank pretty high because he was one of the very first Green Lanterns to have the yellow impurity purged from his ring, and also was the basis for the Starheart, which would become the power source for the original Green Lantern. At number 10, we have Jade, another uh, Alan Scott-adjacent character. Uh, Jade is the daughter of Alan Scott, and because of that, she kind of is imbued with Green Lantern-style power. Um... She can, you know, fly, she can project the energy blast. I don't know if she can do constructs. I don't remember if she can. But uh, all of the basic powers that the original Alan Scott Green Lantern had through the Star Heart, she has. And then she's also notable for having green skin because her mother ended up being a metahuman that had the ability to control plants, similar to uh, Poison Ivy. And that's why her, um, her skin, as she describes it uh is has a huge imbalance of chlorophyll so she has green skin and she is also able to manipulate plants in a very limited capacity uh she was also romantically involved let's say with uh, kyle rayner for a while and when she lost her powers because of a traumatic incident kyle gifted her a green lantern ring as he went off into space and for a short time she was the lead green lantern for sector 2814 uh, later on of course she did get her powers back so she relinquished her title and kyle retook up the role uh jade's a cool character she's kind of um She's one of those characters who's really more notable for dying, unfortunately, and that 
seems to happen a lot in comics history that some female characters are really only important when they die. Uh, Jade was one of those characters who gave a lot of uh, narrative impetus for Kyle Rayner and Ellen Scott to grow as characters, which sucks because there was a lot of potential in Jade and her brother Obsidian really kind of being the next generation for the Justice Society to thrive. But honestly, she was a fun character and I wouldn't mind seeing her again. So breaking into the best of the best, at number nine is a Green Lantern who defended his little plot of Earth, and he's a Green Lantern who, in doing this research, might be one of my favorite new Lanterns, and that is Daniel Young. Daniel Young, who I'm sure you have never heard before, I had never heard of before was a Green Lantern during the period of the Wild West. That's right. Green Lanterns just can't keep away from Earth. They came to us during the Pilgrim's time. They came to us during ancient uh, China. And they came to us again during the Wild West. So I really like this character. He's very basic in the grand scope of things, but I think Daniel Young's a really cool character. So I'm basically obsessed with this character now, and I'm going to tell you why I think he's so cool. So Daniel Young was a sheriff in Montana during the Wild West, and he was charged with the responsibility of Basically, you know, everything that a sheriff does. So protecting the citizens, their property. And on one summer day in 1873, he was chasing down a this band of outlaws called the Jackson Brothers. And while they were having this shootout, Daniel Young was chasing them down. You know, very uh, Lone Ranger style going after these uh, horse thieves. All of their horses suddenly stopped and nearly dropped dead because of a spaceship soaring overhead. Uh, Daniel Young didn't let the spaceship deter him, though, and he captured one of the brothers uh, known as Petey, so Petey Jackson. And after capturing him, both of them were beamed up into this uh, spaceship. So... He's in the spaceship, and he's greeted by none other than Abin Sur. So Abin Sur at this point is the Green Lantern of Sector 2814, but like Abin Sur do, he is in a spaceship, and he is heavily wounded. So he is he was wounded by a battle in deep space, and he needs to make sure that while his ship can heal him, that Sector 2814 has a protector. Uh, the ship is going to be taking some time to heal him. It does have the healing properties that he needs to get better, but it's going to put him out of action for a little while. So he scanned Earth and found that Daniel Young would be the perfect replacement for him while he is healing. And just like a certain highball that came much later on in Avensur's career, he decides to give the role of the Green Lantern of Sector 2814 to this human and trusts him with the responsibility of being Green Lantern. So Daniel Young gets to be essentially a Green Lantern Lone Ranger. And um, I just, I love that. I love that. I love that idea. Um, again, talking about 
you know, having alternate history where like Donna Parker was a Green Lantern. I think if they wanted to do like HBO Max with their uh, Green Lantern show, if they wanted to do like an anthology uh, series and have each season focused on a different uh, Green Lantern at a different time period, I think this would be amazing. This would be so, so good. So following this, uh, Daniel Young continued to battle with the Jackson brothers who returned for their brother, Petey. And unfortunately, they took Willie Benson, who was kind of this, um, basically just this boy who lived in town. Uh, they took him as a hostage to trade for uh, their brother Petey. So Young faced down the outlaws because he wouldn't go along with it. And there's this amazing image of him, you know, dressed in the Green Lantern uniform, doing this, you know, high noon uh, shootout with the Jackson brothers. And so, of course, because they're way outgunned, um, Danny Young is, or Daniel Young is able to defeat the Jackson brothers, round them all up, and put them into custody. And shortly after this, unfortunately, Daniel Young's time as a Green Lantern ended, and he was stripped of the ring, which returned itself to Abensor, who had been healed. Um... I think that Daniel Young deserves a return. I think Daniel Young would be a fascinating person to uh, kind of watch as a member of Green Lantern Corps in the Wild West. So I think that'd be really cool, and that is why he is at number nine. So at number eight, we have Sinestro. Now I know what you're thinking. Sinestro? Isn't he the head of the Sinestro Corps, a.k.a. the Yellow Lantern Corps? Why, yes, he is. And hey, even though he was a Green Lantern, wasn't he the Green Lantern of a separate sector? Well, yes, he was, until the New 52. So the New 52 kicked off with, among other things, not changing whatsoever the history of Batman and Green Lantern. They were two inconspicuous um, absences when it came to the reboots that everyone went through everyone went through pretty hard reboots with the exception of batman and green lantern who retained everything from their history and right up to the uh events of the new 52 and flashpoint uh there was a war between the green lanterns and at the end of it hal jordan was stripped of his ring and this ring found its way to Sinestro, who was in the custody of the Green Lantern Corps and of the Guardians. So the ring attached itself to Sinestro. He was unable to take it off, so he was named temporary Green Lantern of Sector 2814. And immediately, you know, this I thought this was really interesting because he had been a villain for so long that bringing him back into the fold as a Green Lantern was a really interesting idea. And... The reason that he ranks so high, even though he had a fairly short time in retrospect of everybody else as Green Lantern and as Green Lantern in Sector 2814, is a specific scene from pretty early on in his tenure as uh, 2814's Green Lantern. And that is, um, he shows up at Hal Jordan's apartment, who has just been kind of mulling around, depressed after losing his... Uh, status as Green Lantern, and he gifts him a Green Lantern ring that he's created through his own willpower. Um, and so this scene happens where this bridge is, you know, 
crumbling, all these cars are falling off, people are in danger. Hal goes in, you know, swashbuckling as he is, saves one person and is trying to, you know, schmooze his way and catch one car. Sinestro pulls him back and takes the ring away from him and forces Hal Jordan to watch as the bridge continues to crumble and people are falling to their death. Uh, Hal is just like, you know, give me the ring back, give me the ring back. And Sinestro's like, no, I need you to watch and I need you to understand. And then Sinestro uses his ring to effortlessly, not flying around, not making any kind of real constructs, but he uses the ring to pull everything back together. It pulls the bridge back together, places all of the cars back on the bridge, saves all of the people without him expending any kind of extra effort. He just stood there and let the ring do the work. And I love that. We never see that. We always see, you know, Green Lanterns flying in, guns blazing, or I guess ring blazing, uh, making constructs, kicking ass, taking names. But Sinestro was so logical and so um, tactical with his use of his ring that it's no wonder why he was considered one of the best ever to don a Green Lantern ring, and I love that. Um, Of course, eventually his ring uh, leaves him and returns to Hal Jordan, but I think that Sinestro, if he had been given a proper shot, could have had like a superior Spider-Man-style arc where he learns to be a hero again. So that's at number eight. At number seven, we have Abin Sur. So Abin Sur, also known as one of the greatest of all time when it comes to the Green Lantern Corps, was... As far as I know, out of like the modern day Green Lanterns, the Green Lantern of Sector 2814 for the longest, um, he was there as you saw, or as you heard, I guess, from uh, the Daniel Young entry. He was Green Lantern all the way back from the 1800s into today, whenever he bequeaths his uh, ring to Hal Jordan. So he had a long career with the Green Lantern Corps, and during that, he did a lot. He befriended Sinestro, almost, as far as I know, there's you know different accounts on whether he brought Sinestro into the Corps or not, but he befriended Sinestro, helped train Sinestro. Um, he also helped to secretly found the Indigo tribe, uh, discovering the Indigo light of the universe and focusing it into a path of redemption for the universe's worst, uh, worst people. And he is, of course, the most notable for giving the ring to Hal Jordan, the greatest modern-day uh, Green Lantern, arguably, I would say. But Abensur, as far as we know, is um, just considered one of the best for his uh, long career. He is shown from like flashbacks and like different um, short-lived miniseries kind of going back into his uh, role as Green Lantern, shown to be incredibly adept at using that ring. He's very good at what he does. And then... Um, Everything kind of falls apart when he goes to see this uh, kind of this alien prophet who prophecies that Abensur will eventually die when his ring fails him. And this instills this just obsession and this anxiety with Abin and forces him to start to take a spaceship around, you know, traversing world to world where... You know, the Green Lantern ring could absolutely, it gives you the ability 
for space flight. But Abensor wanting to keep his ring charged at all times to 100% uh, resorted to sticking with a ship, which even though this came, this explanation came way late, um, was really a good, I think, retcon of him, uh, of him being in a ship when Jordan finds him. But what ended up happening was he was transporting a villain known as Atrocitus, who uh, would go on to lead the Red Lantern Corps, with his back way before he became that. Uh, but his weakness and his um, anxiety and all this stuff allowed for Atrocitus to break free from his confinement in the ship and attack Abensor, causing the ship to crash land on Earth, which is where Hal Jordan eventually finds him. So he does pass the ring on to Hal Jordan, and that is that for Abensor. Uh, he ranks pretty high here, I think, just for his... Uh, his tour of duty alongside Sinestro and his status as one of the great Green Lanterns of his time. And of course, for his role in getting the ring eventually to Hal Jordan. So that is uh, number seven, Abensor. At number six, we're heading to the big, big hitters now. Number six is Simon Baz. Now, Simon Baz is a controversial Green Lantern, to say the least. Uh, Simon Baz, I think, is one of the most interesting Green Lanterns as well, because he is a um, Muslim American who has been through a lot. Uh, he's one of the very first uh, Middle Eastern DC heroes who has kind of been brought into uh, prominence. He is... Uh, let me uh, clarify, actually. Uh, he's a dual Lebanese-Arab-American as well as being Muslim. I just want to make sure that that's, uh, that's clear here. And uh, he's from Detroit, and he gets his... Uh, he gets his ring replacing Hal Jordan during the Rise of the Third Army story arc. And Simon Baz was notable for being the first Green Lantern to brandish a gun. Now... This was kind of, um, this was taken a whole bunch of ways and outraged a whole bunch of people during this, uh, during the debut of this character and during his initial storyline. Um, basically what happens is that Simon, uh, is involved in street racing and eventually car theft. And so in a moment of desperation after being fired from his job and accidentally putting his former uh, brother-in-law in the hospital in a coma, uh, Simon tries to steal a car and finds out that there is a bomb in it. Now, being a Middle Eastern American man with a bomb in your car is uh, not good. I mean, be having a bomb in your car is not good in general, but being that he is a Muslim American, um, Simon wants to get rid of this car, uh, so he drives the car into the his his former workplace that he was just fired from, uh, knowing that no one would be hurt in the explosion. However, the explosion that does ensue is uh, referred to as a terrorist attack. And Simon is brought in for questioning. So as uh, Simon is being interrogated, at this point we are 
at the end of the Sinestro run as the Sector 2814 Green Lantern and his ring alongside the newly renewed uh, Hal Jordan's ring uh, fuse together and turn into this very um, unstable and malfunctioning Green Lantern ring that leaves both of them and finds Simon. So uh, Simon Baz starts off his career uh, running from the authorities as a possible terrorist and eventually being hunted down by the Justice League. So Simon Baz is, uh, because of his ring malfunctioning, not being able to create constructs as easily as he should be able to, does resort to a gun to defend himself. Uh, however, he is kind of noticeable... Uh, notable for being kind of a brash and abrasive character, kind of in the same vein as like a Guy Gardner. But eventually he does soften up, he does become a valued member of the Green Lantern Corps, and is eventually able to help mentor uh, Jessica Cruz. And the two of them become the, during the DC Rebirth arc, become the dual... Uh, bearers of the role as Sector 2814's Green Lantern. So right now he's the current Green Lantern of Sector 2814 alongside uh, Jessica Cruz. So that's Simon Baz at number six. Now we're looking at top five. Top five, This um, a lot of these places moved around a bunch during this, but I've kind of settled on this ranking for them. And once again, as we head into the top five, I have to re reiterate, this is my personal list. This is a this is subjective. If you disagree, feel free to let me know. Feel free to let me know what your list is. But do not attack me because um, just like a Green Lantern ring, I have protection against attacks. So uh, going into the top five, at number five, I have John Stewart. Now, John Stewart's interesting. Um, I was never a huge John Stewart fan when it comes to comparing him to other Green Lanterns, where he kind of stacks up. Um, I was introduced to John Stewart, like most people, I think, during the Justice League cartoon that was later succeeded by Justice League Unlimited. And there, uh, John Stewart was given a lot of a lot of pathos. Uh, he had this burgeoning relationship with Hawkgirl that was kind of destined to fail and all of this stuff. So I enjoyed him in that show. Uh, but I never really connected with him in the comics because he was always a bit more militant and a bit more, um, I would say, abrasive, distant, cold. Uh, but you can't overlook the fact that Jon Stewart has had a long tenure in the role. Uh, he is, I think a lot of people would agree that he's kind of the Abin Sur of this generation, someone who's steadfast, holds the line, and is kind of in it for the long haul. He's a lifer in the Green Lantern Corps. That's not to say that he hasn't been involved in other corps. Uh, famously, one of his, pretty much his, the love of his life, uh, became a Star Sapphire and in certain continuities, he has ended up uh, retiring and marrying her. Uh, but Jon Stewart comes from a military background. He was a former uh, Marine who eventually took an interest after his, uh, his time in architecture. So Jon Stewart, in some, uh, some stories, is known as the bridge builder. He is the one who uh, 
helps out with a lot of architecture problems around the DC universe when it comes to, you know, building the Hall of Justice and other stuff like that. But um, John Stewart was always kind of the straight man, the straight-laced, you know, no-nonsense guy. And uh, he's been criticized for his lack of imagination, especially with characters like Hal Jordan, Kyle Rayner, etc. But um, he's still a great, great member of the Green Lantern Corps. Recently, in the comics, he actually... uh, kind of discovered the ultraviolet spectrum so he was the very first ultraviolet lantern and has discovered that in the same way that Abin Sur discovered the indigo light so he is definitely notable and as one of uh the many current modern day uh human green lanterns he definitely had to place among the top five at Number four, we have Jessica Cruz. Now, I think this is going to be probably a controversial decision for a lot of people, but I absolutely adore Jessica Cruz. She's a fantastic character, and for, um, among many reasons, I think is most notable is that she is a sufferer of agoraphobia and of hardcore anxiety. Uh, Jessica Cruz, during her um, adolescence, was going hiking with some friends when they came upon uh, two people burying a body. And these two people proceeded to kill all of her friends and tried to kill her. But she was able to escape from them and ever since then has had incredible anxiety, um, suffering from panic attacks on the regular. And so when the crime syndicate invaded the crime syndicate from Earth 3 invaded Earth 1 and Power Ring, the fearful uh, version of Green Lantern from the crime syndicate, was killed by Sinestro. His Power Ring, the Ring of Volthum, uh, found Jessica because she was, as the ring said, um, engulfed in fear. And that was something that the Power Ring, the Ring of Volthum, could use against her. Now, Real quick, quick aside, what is the Ring of Volthum? The Ring of Volthum is more of a uh, symbiote who feeds off of the life force and the fear of its user and therefore seeks out users who are abundant in their fear. So Jessica Cruz was a prime candidate and thankfully she was able to uh, overcome some of her fear to become a member of the Justice League for a short time. And then, um, unfortunately, she was re-taken over by the Spirit of Volthum uh, during the Justice or during the uh, Dark Side War when the Anti-Monitor came to Earth seeking to destroy it and set the Black Racer upon the Flash, who had to run away from it. Black Racer, bottom end of death, uh, etc., etc. So Jessica Cruz decided to sacrifice herself because she was kind of in this weird, like, burgeoning romance with Barry. Um, It's weird. But Jessica throws herself in between Barry and the Black Racer and is seemingly killed, but what we find out is that she overcame her fear, her anxiety, and her fear of death specifically to sacrifice herself for someone that she uh, cared about. And this allowed the Ring of Volthum to be overloaded with her overcoming fear. Uh, Volthum, the spirit of Volthum that inhabited the ring, was really the one that was killed by coming into contact with the Black Racer. And for overcoming her fear, Jessica Cruz was inducted into the Green Lantern Corps. Since then, uh, she has been 
as we said before, teamed up with Simon Baz, and they're kind of the joint current stationed Green Lanterns of 2814. Uh, she's also currently in the Ghost Sector, along with Justice League Odyssey, and is serving on that team as the Green Lantern um, member of any given Justice League team that has to be there. So I really like Jessica Cruz's story, the fact that she literally had to overcome fear to be able to uh, become a Green Lantern, the fact that she was powering prior to this, uh, an unwilling power ring, and of course an unwilling Green Lantern as well, not wanting to have that responsibility. But her ability to overcome fear, her ability to grow as a person, and just her entire narrative arc up to this point puts her in the top five specifically at number four now at number three we have guy gardner guy gardner lots of people's least favorite green lantern i have gone through uh my phase of hating guy gardner i think anyone who's a fan of green lantern uh, has gone through a phase of absolutely hating Guy Gardner and everything he represents. Uh, Guy Gardner is the ginger bowl cut asshole of the Green Lantern Corps, and he's gone through a lot. Uh, he was originally the successor to uh, Hal Jordan during a period where Hal Jordan was unable to uh, fulfill his duties as Green Lantern and was immediately just an asshole. But he was eventually, and I love this, uh, was saving someone and was hit by a car, which put him in a coma, which is how Jon Stewart came into uh, contact with the Green Lantern Corps. But since then, Guy Gardner has been on quite a ride. At a certain point, he gave up his Green Lantern ring and took up a yellow ring and became Warrior. Um, later on, they found out that he had some kind of alien blood within him, which kind of mixed with his uh, yellow lantern abilities and it was a whole thing it doesn't make a whole lot of sense and thankfully they retconned that all out so that he is just a true blue red-blooded american um and then later on during a very lengthy stint he became the leader of the red lantern corps red lantern guy is my favorite version of guy gardner he was originally sent in to infiltrate the red lantern corps by the green lantern corps uh to kind of erode them from within and defeat them uh, but eventually he saw how apathetic the Guardians and the Green Lantern Corps as a whole were to the universe and that the Red Lanterns were trying to... They're basically... Their only beef was really with the Green Lantern Corps. So Guy uh, overthrew uh, Atrocitus, who was the leader at that point, became the leader and abandoned the Green Lantern Corps to be a Red Lantern. So he was a leader of the Red Lanterns for a long while before... Uh, the War of the Lanterns, where he retook up his role as a Green Lantern and has been serving on their honor guard ever since. Uh, Guy Gardner has had a long history with a lot of different characters. I think probably my favorite run of him is during his stint as part of the Justice League International, along with uh, fan favorites Blue Beetle and Booster Gold, along with uh, Martian Manhunter, Fire and Ice, and of course... Batman. Guy Gardner and Batman have a very complicated relationship, uh, especially because, notably, during the run of Justice League International, Batman knocked him out in, as Blue Beetle says, one punch. Uh, Batman is the proverbial one-punch man for Guy Gardner, and Guy Gardner has never been able to live that down. So I love that he's kind of the abrasive, um, angry middle child, the redhead, the redheaded stepchild if you will, of the Green Lantern Corps. Um, he has shown incredible 
compassion as well as being able to really kick some ass. So big fan of Guy Gardner, and he is right there in the top three at number three. Now, we head into number two. The top two of all time of Green Lancers Sector 2814. And again, I feel like this might be a uh, controversial decision. However, at number two, I have Hal Jordan. Hal Jordan, highball, the uh, leader, the sometimes said the greatest Green Lantern. Um, Hal Jordan began his stint when he came into contact with Abin Sor, who was heavily, uh, mortally injured, and passed on his ring to Hal Jordan for his ability to overcome fear. Uh, Hal Jordan was one of the uh, flagship characters of the Silver Age of DC, along with Barry Allen, as kind of introducing the science fiction... Um, uh, the science fiction uh, aspect to superhero comics that hadn't really been seen at the time. So him and Barry Allen, you know, thick as thieves, the brave and the bold, uh, and Hal Jordan quickly established himself as one of the greatest Green Lanterns of all time. Uh, he was able to overcome the yellow impurity inside of all Green Lantern rings, has at separate times taken up leadership of the Green Lantern Corps, uh, has abandoned the Green Lantern Corps probably as many times as he's led it, but he has had a long and um, hard-fought career with the Green Lanterns. Um, he has been there for several of the big uh, shakeups within the Green Lantern Corps, including Emerald Twilight, in which he killed the entire Green Lantern Corps and became Parallax. Uh, following this, Green, Green Lanterns were no more for a short time uh, until Kyle Rayner came along, and Hal Jordan ended up sacrificing himself to uh, solve Zero Hour and was later bonded to the Spectre. He was brought back during the Green Lantern Rebirth storyline that saw the return of Parallax as a uh, kind of the god of fear and the embodiment of yellow energy and overcame all that to lead the Green Lanterns through Blackest Night, through the Sinestro Corps War, and on and on up until today. Currently, he is the lead in the Grant Morrison Green Lantern book, uh, which is very Grant Morrison, is the really the only way I can describe it. Um, it's probably the most, Green, or the most Grant Morrison take on Green Lantern we've ever seen. Uh, but Hal Jordan, I think, is the person that most people think of when it comes to uh, Green Lantern. He has appeared in almost every single form of media as Green Lantern, as well as a movie which starred Deadpool, Ryan Reynolds, uh, which was not his fault for as bad as it was. Um, but Green Lantern really is kind of synonymous with Hal Jordan. He is the iconic image of Green Lantern. Uh, for those of us who are millennials and grew up with the Justice League cartoon, a lot of people kind of see Jon Stewart as their Green Lantern, but um, I think Hal Jordan is kind of the leader. He is the icon of the Green Lantern, not the icon, um, but he really is somebody who has led the core through its uh, through its highs and its lows, and he is one of the greatest Green Lanterns of all time. But for me, in my heart of hearts, he is not the greatest Green Lantern. That honor goes to the torchbearer, Kyle 
Raider. Uh, Kyle Rayner became Green Lantern after the decimation of the Green Lantern Corps and uh, Hal Jordan's transformation into Parallax. Uh, Ganthet, the last remaining Guardian, brought the last remaining uh, Green Lantern ring that was made from a composite of the broken Green Lantern rings to Earth, and he landed in the middle of Los Angeles, where I live, uh, and found Kyle Rayner stumbling out of a nightclub in a back alley and basically said, all right, you're going to have to do, and gives him the ring. Uh, Kyle Rayner, pretty early on, was kind of set up as uh, what if Spider-Man was Green Lantern in the DC Universe, uh, because he was kind of a brash and abrasive kid who really didn't know what the responsibility was of becoming Green Lantern. Uh, he really kind of had to learn alongside uh, his girlfriend Alex, who is the progenitor of the women in fridges uh storytelling trope where you kill off a female character to progress the male character's narrative arc um it's terrible it's awful but it really did wonders for kyle's character which allowed him to and i hate and i don't like saying that but it really did have a positive impact on kyle's character who realized the power and responsibility that came with the role as green lantern he became the torchbearer and allowed the green lantern corps to begin to rebuild and thrive uh the green lantern corps would not be where it is today without kyle rayner being the torchbearer uh kyle rayner has also served as ion the embodiment of willpower for a short time where he was essentially uh green lantern god um, and he has served as the White Lantern as well after doing a long quest, which is one of my favorite Green Lantern arcs of all time, where he went around the galaxy learning from the uh, other leaders of the separate cores along the color spectrum, very Avatar-like, to become the White Lantern and served as the White Lantern for a while until he was forced to give up his White Lantern abilities and his power by reviving a very dead Hal Jordan. He used his abilities to the point that he expended all of the White Lantern energy that he had, and so he is no longer the White Lantern. Uh, after briefly wielding Hal Jordan's Green Lantern ring in a battle against General Zod, he was given his own ring once again, and his classic costume, an updated version of it, but mostly his classic costume, and is once again the torchbearer of the Green Lantern Corps. So he's my favorite. He's the Green Lantern when I uh, was growing up, and he was the first character that I kind of looked at, and I was like, hey, that kind of looks like me. And he was the first character who I really identified with. Um, I love Superman. I love Batman. I love Dick Grayson Robin. But Kyle Rayner was one of the first characters that I kind of identified with and immediately uh, just like people have their own uh, Doctor Who, people have their own, you know, versions of different characters kyle rayner will always be my green lantern and that is why he is at the top and is the greatest green lantern to hail from sector 2814 uh as previously stated i would love to hear uh lists from people who disagree with me uh feel free to let me know what your list is at geeksplained pod on instagram and twitter that's at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained p-o-d 
or you can also send me your responses, your lists through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails, to geeksplained at gmail.com. Uh, to recap, at number 17, we have Waverly Sayre. Number 16, we have Laham. At number 15, we have Donna Parker. At number 14, we have Jong Lee. At number 13, we have Star Carol. Uh, number 12, we have Anya Savenlovich. At number 11, we have Yolan Gore. At number 10, we have Jade. At number 9, we have Daniel Young. At number 8, we have Sinestro. At number 7, Alvin Soar. Number 6 is Simon Baz. Number 5, John Stewart. Number 4, Jessica Cruz. Number 3, Guy Gardner. Number 2, Hal Jordan. And at number 1, Kyle Rayner. So, I love... The Green Lantern Corps, their history is something that fascinates me. I'm a huge lore hunter, so if a character or construct or concept in comic books has a deep set lore, you can bet I have gone into it and that I have a special connection with it. Uh, the Green Lantern Corps is vast. Uh, Sector 2814 is just one of the many Green Lantern Corps, or one of the many sectors that the Green Lantern Corps uh, presides over. But um, I would have to say that 2814 is my favorite. The lanterns within it are some of the greatest Green Lanterns to ever don a power ring. And of them, Kyle Rayner is the greatest of all time. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are reviewing Arrow Season 8, the final season, specifically Episode 5, entitled Proctnost, or Proctnost. It's unclear how to pronounce that. Um... So yeah, we're back with the uh, Arrow reviews uh, after taking a brief break last week to review Wonder Woman Bloodlines. If you haven't listened to our episode, that, like I said, was the giant-sized Geek Explained Spotlight for November of Kingdom Come, also featuring a very special weekly review because Arrow was on break. But now we are back in the thick of it, and we are going to jump right in. So episode 5 uh, really focuses on two specific relationships and two different locations. So our main locations here are Russia, where Oliver and his team are going to get the plans to create this weapon that they can use against the Monitor, while a second team featuring uh, John Diggle and a very special guest are going to Bialia to get plutonium so that they can power this weapon to fight the Monitor with. Now the first team going to Russia uh, includes Oliver, Mia, William, uh, Laurel, and as we find out later on, Anatoly! Anatoly is back. Uh, this is of course mirroring how the season has been so far with each episode uh, featuring a uh, like an element or a concept from the season that it corresponds with. This one, episode 5, corresponds with season 5, which had all of the flashbacks take place in Russia. So, really good stuff seeing Anatoly again. I enjoyed seeing him. Always a good time seeing Anatoly. Uh, he has now become a bar owner after his falling out with the Bratva, and he is helping Oliver and co. Uh, acquire the plans for this weapon. So, 
we get a lot of Russia play, and the main kind of conflict, I would say, is not even with any of the Russian uh, villains or the Bradvar or anything. It's between Oliver and Mia. The episode opens up, and I really enjoyed this, with a, uh, a montage between Oliver and Mia, with Oliver kind of showing Mia some of the training that he did in the first season, including the tennis ball exercise, as well as running through some of his most famous trick arrows. I really like this. We do know that the spinoff is going to be featuring Mia in the green arrow role, so kind of getting her into the um, into the rhythm of things, into uh, some of the stuff that makes Green Arrow, Green Arrow, I think is a good uh, good call. Uh, I'm just waiting to see her do the Salmon Ladder because we know that is a Green Arrow staple. But overall, um, the conflict between uh, Oliver and Mia kind of continued, which I... I feel like every single episode they get to a certain understanding and the next episode they fall right back to square one. So I'm hoping that that trend doesn't continue because eventually, I mean in this episode even, I felt like we were kind of retreading stuff that we'd already kind of gotten over and covered. But overall I'm starting to like Mia a little bit more, like you're getting some of her... Um, anger and she's starting to grow as a character which i've been waiting for um i also loved the moment when they realized they have to go to a fight club and william is like oh yeah that's kind of where that's where i met you and oliver goes he met you where like as that dad just being like my daughter was in a fight club i just thought it was really good uh stephen amell has been fantastic rolling into this father fatherly role here really enjoy that and he is again killing it in this episode um so they are able to get the plans for the weapon and it looks like uh laurel has betrayed lila and the monitor over in bialia um diggle has enlisted the help of one roy harper big fan of roy especially the colton haynes uh version of him and i I thought he did just as well as he's always done. He's always knocked this character out of the park. All of his uh, his narrative has been really, I think, well executed throughout all the seasons. Uh, right now, he's kind of in another self-imposed exile because of the outbursts that he had last time he went on a mission with Team Arrow. And I love this. It's a very little thing. It's a very small thing. But um, when Diggle goes to find him, Roy is under the alias of Jason. And we know that ever since the New 52, uh, Jason and, or uh, Roy rather, and Jason Todd have been buddies. So getting that cool callback, I thought was nice, and I enjoyed that. Um, it kind of makes me want to see uh, a Red Hood, the Outlaws, with like um, uh, maybe like. Wonder Girl, Donna Troy, or uh, Starfire, along with the Titans version of Jason with this, like, older Roy, older, more experienced Roy. I think that'd be pretty cool, but, um, yeah, loved seeing Roy here. Uh, Diggle also does a big time travel no-no where he gives uh, Roy information about his future, hoping to, I guess, avert it. Because we, as we know, in uh, the timeline of the 2040 flash forwards, uh, Roy at a certain point exiled himself to Lian Yu, which it seems like he did have plans to do so at the beginning of this episode. But um, I think it's really interesting that 
Diggle chose to kind of tell him what's going on. I don't know how that's going to adversely affect the future, but having Roy back on the team is always a good choice, and I'm looking forward to seeing him participate more throughout this season. So that's all good stuff. Uh, we also got to see uh, the ending. We got to see the uh, kind of the fallout of Laurel's choice to stick with Oliver by his side and be a hero. Great stuff. Great stuff. By Laurel here. I really, really liked um, what she's been doing in this season, kind of going from that villain to an anti-hero to someone who is willing to betray Oliver to get her Earth back, to realizing that to do so would be returning to her Black Siren days. So I really enjoyed um, all the stuff that she's been doing throughout her arc as well. Her and Roy have had very, not similar arcs, but very similarly structured, where they keep getting knocked down and have to bring themselves back up so i enjoyed that and that culminated with the uh, confrontation with lila uh where oliver and diggle show up and we now you know lila's true intentions as uh a partner for the monitor have been revealed and we ended with a little cliffhanger where um after laurel oliver and diggle go to confront lila they're all hit with sleep darts so we're not sure exactly what's going to happen, but I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, this The season just keeps ramping up. It's really, really good. Lots of good action in here as well with Oliver and Mia in the Fight Club. And I am excited to see where the mystery of Lila goes. I hope we get some kind of explanation on why she's working with the Monitor and all that. So hopefully we'll get that in the next episode or two. And we are, I think, one week, two weeks away from uh, Crisis. So it's one, two. So we're three weeks technically from uh, Crisis. So that gives us three more episodes until uh, Crisis is upon us. So I'm looking forward to this. Really cannot wait to see what happens next episode. So stay tuned next week for episode number six in our weekly review series on Arrow Season 8. But for now, let's hop on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week. Whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like me to try out for this segment, feel free to request that at Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, or through email, because I'm an old man and I still read emails, to geeksplained at gmail.com. But before we get into this week's books, we got to take a look back at last week with the Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week. And I think it's, uh, it's pretty apropos that we're doing an episode on Green Lantern this week with the Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week being Far Sector. This was a book that I thoroughly enjoyed. It was my favorite book of the week, and it was just so good. I really, really liked it, the way that it set its world up for it to uh, start. I just, ah, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, this is the first of 12 issues. It is a maxi-series written by N.K. Jemison with art by Jamal Campbell, so the same artist that did uh, Naomi. Uh, it's part of DC's Young Animal line, so it's not part of Wonder Comics. It's part of uh, Gerard Way's Young Animal line, and it's, it's just what I loved about it so much was that 
this book is exactly what a Green Lantern uh, story should be, exactly what a Green Lantern show should be, and that's a procedural in space, because ultimately Green Lanterns are space cops. And this, uh, this book gives us a really interesting take on that. Uh, it stars Sojourn, or Joe, who is kind of our lead here, and she is part of the Green Lantern Corps and go and is essentially the Green Lantern for the Far Sector. Now, the Far Sector is the furthest reach of the universe, and it's where um, you're super friggin' far away from Oa, so you don't have a whole lot of ring charge. Uh, the lantern that you have is not going to be as good or able to tap into the uh, heart of Oa as well as other lanterns. And if you want help from another lantern, it's going to be a long time before they get there. So having Joe Malin as the lead here, I really liked. The art's stellar. Uh, basically, she is kind of the lead cop over this uh, over this city. This giant city that has, I think, over, you know, like, two million people living in it and hasn't seen a crime in the last 500 years. Oh, sorry. It's 20 billion. I'm really looking through it right now. So it's 20 billion citizens, and it's called The City Enduring. And it's basically a... Uh, a city or a world that to solve its problems of uh, constant war, they stripped all emotion from the planet. So it's a really interesting place, very futuristic, very Blade Runner in that way as well. Um, and dropping a Green Lantern onto this Blade Runner-esque planet that thrives off of not having emotion is, uh, I think, really interesting. And so this is the first... Uh, murder the first crime in 500 years and so uh, Joe is tasked with solving it so I really liked it like I said the art's stunning um, Joe I think is a really compelling character and I'm really looking forward to getting more of her and overall I'm just really excited for issue two so love the book overall if you haven't picked it up if you're a fan of Green Lantern this is definitely a book that you're going to want to pick up but that's last week let's talk about this week this week Oh boy, we got a lot. So uh, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We have twelve books. Oh man, I've been saying the last couple weeks that uh, it's been a little light. That we have uh, we've kind of slowed down a bit. We've been sitting in the you know four, five, six range when it comes to our comics countdown. And I knew that at some point during the holiday season it was going to blow back up, and here we are. We've got 12 books for you here to check out this week. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Starting off with Marvel 2099 Alpha, number one. Uh, this is the kickoff for the 2099 Revival. Uh, this was a line back in the 80s where people were looking at what's the world going to be like 100 years from now? And so we got, you know, Spider-Man 2099 was probably the most famous, but we also got X-Men 2099, Doctor Doom 2099, who might still be the same Doctor Doom, uh, Punisher 2099, among others. And uh, for its 80th anniversary, um, Marvel is bringing this line back because... Um, because it's cool. So let's jump into the synopsis here. 80 years ago, the Marvel Universe was born. 80 years from now, will it die? 
The future is in peril. Events of Amazing Spider-Man have been leading to this for months. Something is happening in 2099 that spans Nueva York and beyond, and will shake up the official Marvel future forever. This is not a drill. So this is written by Nick Spencer with art by Victor Bogdanovich. Um... Art by, or uh, cover art by Patrick Leeson. Uh, like I said, they've been building up to this in the Amazing Spider-Man book for a little while now. And if you're a big fan of the 2099 line, this is definitely one you got to pick up. Next up, we have Nightwing number 66, written by Dan Jurgens with art by Ronan Cliquet. Um This is continuing the Talon storyline where William Cobb has come to uh, take Rick Grayson under his wing no pun intended, and bring him into the court officially. Uh, we found out during the annual that was released last week that this whole uh, Rick situation was kind of influenced by the Court of Owls. And I was speaking to uh, a friend of mine back in uh, Tucson when I was there last week. Uh, shout out to Malcolm and everybody over at Heroes and Villains. Um, that if they had released this story that was in the annual, before the Rick storyline, I think all of us would have been okay with the Rick storyline a lot sooner. So, it is what it is. Uh, we have Rick Grayson and we have this information now. Um, I'm still a big fan of the Court of Owls, so I'm looking forward to this. So let's jump into the synopsis here. William Cobb has taken the Nightwings down one by one leaving Rick on his own in a bloodhaven that is literally on fire. Cobb offers Rick a chance to save his city by at last fulfilling his legacy as the Grey Sun and becoming the new Talon and leading the Court of Owls into a new age. So I, I love the uh, Court of Owls, Dick Grayson uh, connection. A lot of people are kind of meh on it, and I get that, but I really like it, and I'm looking forward to seeing how this story shapes up. Next up, we have Annihilation Scourge Alpha, number one. Uh, just like 2099, this is a spiritual sequel to the Annihilation crossover that Marvel did so many years ago. Uh, Annihilation, for those of you who don't know, was the birthplace of the modern Guardians of the Galaxy, so if you like the Guardians of the Galaxy, you have Annihilation to thank. Uh, this is a sequel to that years down the line. Uh, it's written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Juanan Ramirez. Uh, looks interesting. If you're a fan of Marvel Cosmic, I think you're going to like this. This is bringing together not just our more spacefaring cosmic characters like Nova, Silver Surfer, Beta Ray Bill, but also brings in the Fantastic Four to help them out, because this is going to be a big, big problem. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The opening salvo for December's main event. Something is stirring in the negative zone. Something that the Marvel Universe isn't ready for. Will Nova be able to assemble a team powerful enough to tackle this burgeoning threat? Or is it already too late to stop its descent upon the galaxy? For the cosmos's greatest heroes, Annihilation is only the beginning. So yeah, sounds interesting. Um, Annihilus 
is, I think, one of the more underserved characters of the Marvel Universe. So I'm looking forward to this. It should be a good time. Next up, we have Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 5 of 12, written by Matt Fraction with art by Steve Lieber. Uh, last issue really, really picked up, and I really enjoyed it. Um, at times, the anthology aspect of the book can be grating for some people and i totally get that it's not everybody's cup of tea but i've been really enjoying the book uh it's had its dips throughout the last couple issues but i'm overall really enjoying it and i'm looking forward to this book so let's jump into the synopsis here Jingle cell, Batman smells, the prank war goes astray. A Batmobile lost a wheel, literally, cause Jimmy stole it from the valet. So, that sounds fun. <laughs> uh, Jimmy, as we have seen, has been stationed in Gotham City to solve his own murder. Uh, last issue he had some help from lois lane and it looks like he is going to be directly uh interacting with batman here so looking forward to this next up we have captain america number 16 written by Tanahisi coates with art by jason masters um once again the art has been really letting me down these last few issues i hope it gets better i hope jason masters um is able to evolve his art style because i've never been a huge fan of his art style and i'm really hoping that he gets better because that's the thing that for me and it's nothing against jason matter masters i'm sure he's a lovely person but that's really kind of what turns me off of this book because it's definitely not the writing ta-nehisi coates is very good and i'm looking forward to continuing the story i just i really want this to be more visually appealing is all so let's jump into the synopsis here the legend of Steve continues. The killing of a cop sets off a powder keg in the New York streets, one that Steve Rogers and Misty Knight must fight to contain. But an old foe with a new face is at the heart of this situation. How will justice be served? So, I'm okay with that. It sounds like uh, Steve and Misty getting into a procedural style story. I really have been enjoying the more spy-heavy aspect of Steve's story in this arc, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they do here. Next up, we have Justice League, number 36, written by Scott Snyder, with art by Francis Manipole, uh, and additional story by James Tynan IV, of course. Um, this is continuing on the Justice Doom War, and it's we're at the low point here. We're at the point where it seems like all has been lost. Lex Luthor and um, his forces of doom have won. And it's going to be a lot for the Justice League to overcome this. So let's jump into the synopsis here. How powerful is too powerful? Lex Luthor has assembled everything he needs to complete his plan of turning the world toward doom including reviving the ancient goddess Perpetua and restoring her powers. But can he keep Perpetua from dragging the DC Universe into the Abyss alongside the rest of the multiverse? This is a question that hero and villain alike must ask, as the epic battle between the Justice League and the Legion of Doom across space and time comes crashing together. Everything that happens here sets the stage for the census-shattering finale of the Justice Doom War, and the fate of all existence hangs in the balance. So this book has just been so good throughout this entire arc, um, bringing in the Justice Society as well as um, all of the multiversal Justice Leagues that they brought in for this is just... 
oh, it makes my heart happy. So I'm really looking forward to this and um, should be good. Next up, we have Marauders number two, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lolly. Once again, this was the sleeper hit of um, that week that the first issue came out. I was very surprised by this, and I'm definitely going to be picking this up going forward. Uh, really looking forward to this. The book has been has a lot of promise, and I'm hoping that it sticks the landing. Uh, Kate Pride, as she wants to be called now, I think is a great lead, and I'm looking forward to seeing what this book does. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The Hellfire Trading Company has control of mutant trade on the seas, but that doesn't mean its inner circle is done stabbing one another in the back. As Captain Pride and her marauders sail on, the real cutthroats are back home. So, we kind of knew going into all of this that the bringing in the Hellfire Club, specifically Sebastian Stark, Sebastian Shaw and Emma Frost was going to be a problem. So I'm not surprised that it's going to be continue to be a problem, especially in this book, but I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with this. Um, it's been teased that Kate is eventually going to become the Red Queen of the Hellfire Trading Company, but I love stuff like this. It feels very Game of Thrones-esque with like political intrigue and stuff like that. So I'm hoping that they like I said, stick the landing on that, and that this continues to be a fun swashbuckling adventure. Next up, we have Batman Superman, number four, written by Joshua Williamson, with art by David Marquez. This book's been good. This book's been really good so far. Uh, this is continuing the uh, Secret Six storyline with the Batman Who Laughs, and... Um, there's just a lot to like here. The art's stellar, the writing's great, and we're getting this um, ramping up of tension and the mystery surrounding this new Secret Six. So I am looking forward to this. I'm really looking forward to this, and this is continuing on, of course, the year of the villain, which has been dominating DC for the last couple months. So uh, let's jump into the synopsis here. Even from prison. The Batman Who Laughs is staying two steps ahead of the Cape Crusader and the Man of Steel. His plan to infect heroes and turn them into the Dark Multiverse versions of themselves is starting to build steam, with Shazam and others already succumbing to his evil toxin. Batman and Superman are racing the clock to prevent the other three members of the Secret Six from being poisoned, but they realize they are too late when those three come looking for them instead, one of whom is a lot closer to Superman than expected and itching for a fight. So we do know uh, the Secret Six have been revealed to at least us as the reader, uh, that being Shazam, Hawkman, Jim Gordon, Blue Beetle, uh, Supergirl, and Donna Troy. And uh, it looks like this book is going to focus on Supergirl and how she's going to, how she's prepared to pretty much just kick uh, Superman's ass. So I'm looking forward to this. This should be a great throwdown issue. Next up, we have Absolute Carnage, number five of five, written by Donnie Cates with art by Ryan Stegman. Uh, this book's been great. A great blockbuster-style uh, crossover between Venom and Spider-Man with the greater Marvel Universe kind of playing the black, the backdrop. And uh, I'm really hoping that this takes the landing. Uh, Donnie Cates and Ryan Stegman have been great. Uh, like I said, I need to go back and read the uh, whole Venom run by the two of them. Uh, it's been 
so good from what I hear, and if this crossover is any indication, then I am in for a good time. But really looking forward to this final issue to see how everything wraps up. So now we are going to get into the lengthy synopsis here. Venom and Carnage to the death! And that's it. So, uh, pretty much tells you really all you need to know. Um, I'm looking forward to this. Should be good stuff. And uh, definitely pick this one up if you've been following the rest of the story. So, coming into next, we have Flash Forward, number three of six, written by Scott Lobdell with art by Brett Booth. Um, this book's been good. The last two issues have been really good. Um, you need to buy this. Even if you don't like so much the creative team or the art style, we need to buy this book so that Wally West gets a true ongoing. Even if it's not by this team, and I would much prefer uh, Doc Shaner, who is doing the covers on all of these, to be the lead artist, but I really want this book to do well. I really want this book to succeed. And I really want Wally West to get the recognition that he deserves as the true fastest man alive. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The rift between the multiverse and dark multiverse is growing wider, and evil dark energy is threatening all the planets in its path. It's up to Wally West to journey to these worlds and purge them of this darkness, but the greater darkness is that from within. The destruction has now found its way to Earth-43, where Roy Harper is the world's premier vampire hunter and Wally's only hope of surviving. Record time. That's a flash synopsis. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, I'm so dumb. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I'm also looking forward to seeing Roy again, especially with the guilt that Wally has had for inadvertently causing his death during Heroes in Crisis. And we're throwing in vampires and Roy being a vampire hunter. I love that. What's not to love about it? And maybe this book might end up becoming a Wally West, Roy Harper, uh, buddy traveling story where the two of them end up going from Earth to Earth. So we'll see. Pick this book up, please, for me. Next up, we have King Thor, number three of four, written by Jason Aaron with art by Asad Ribich, or Ribic. I mispronounced your name, and I apologize. But this is the penultimate issue to Jason Aaron's run, not just on King Thor, but on Thor as a whole. Uh, they debuted in the last uh, couple issues that Gore is back, and Jason Aaron poetically is finishing his Thor run as he started it with Thor versus the God Butcher. So really looking forward to this. Um, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen in these last two issues, whether this is going to be like the big bombastic fight, and the next issue is going to be kind of the denouement, or the epilogue of everything, or whether something else crazy is going to happen, but I'm looking forward to it for sure. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The Return of the God Butcher Allfather Thor believed the fight with his brother Loki, now empowered by the Necrosword and more bitter than ever, would be the bloodiest fight of his long life. But he's about to be proven wrong. Gore the God Butcher has bided his time for millennia. Now it is the end of all things, and the end of the last of the gods. So, pretty epic-sounding stuff. Um, we knew that eventually they were going to throw down again, and I can't wait to see the rematch. So, really looking forward to this. But my big book of the week, the book I think you should definitely be picking up alongside Flash Forward, Issue 3, 
is Batman number 83, written by Tom King with art by Mikel Janine. This book, man, uh, we've got two issues left in Tom King's run of Batman, and uh, left last issue left with a hell of a cliffhanger. And that's, for me, that's why it's the big book of the week and not Flash Forward, even though it was very close, uh, because I need to see what happens next. Because, spoilers for last issue, uh, the end of the issue... Uh, concluded the fight between Batman and Bane with Batman winning. But then uh, Thomas Wayne Batman shows up and shoots Batman and then shoots Bane in the head, killing him. So I don't know what the hell is happening here. I'm really interested and I need to know what happens next. So let's jump into the synopsis here. It's chapter nine of City of Bane and it's time for a reckoning in Gotham City. Thomas Wayne has joined forces with Bane, and that alliance threatens to throw a monkey wrench into Batman's plans. And as Bane's evil army begins to crumble, the Cape Crusader must face the real force behind it all. As the end of this epic tale grows near, Batman and his allies have a chance and a choice. Let Bane stay in power and guarantee the city's survival, or risk everything to break free. I think it's really interesting that the synopsis is staying spoiler-free, and that uh, Bane's dead at this point. But I applaud DC trying to keep its uh, greater story points from leaking out. Um, it did the same thing with the death of Alfred in issue, I want to say, 77. I'm hoping that he's not dead, but I'm starting to get the feeling that he is for good. So we'll just have to see. But overall, really looking forward to this book. And um, only two more left. We've only got two more left after this. And I, for one, am sad to see tom king go off the main batman book into his own Batcat book but looking forward to this book nonetheless so to recap we have 2099 alpha number one nightwing number 66 annihilation scourge alpha number one superman's pal jimmy olsen number five of 12 captain america number 16 justice league number 36 marauders number two batman superman number four Absolute Carnage, number 5 of 5. Flash Forward, number 3 of 6. King Thor, number 3 of 4. And Batman, number 83. So that is a lot. We're, uh, what is this? Um, almost 25 minutes worth of this uh, this week's Comics Countdown. That is a giant-sized version of this week's Comics Countdown. So a lot to pick up here. Uh, I hope you pick up some of these books. If some of them interest you, make sure you pick them up at your LCS or on Comicsology or however you get your comics. Um, if you pick up any of them, please, I humbly ask you, please pick up Flash Forward. You don't have to read it. You don't have to enjoy it. But for Wally West to succeed, for DC to see that people want to see books driven by Wally West and his assorted supporting cast, including possibly Iris and Jay, who are oh, who were revealed in last issue, um, we gotta buy this book. So definitely pick this up. Um, pick up any of the books. Pick up all the books. Um, if your wallet will allow, of course. But overall, again... Lots of books to pick up. If you are going to pick up any of them, please, please, for me, for your old buddy Eric, please pick up Flash Forward number three. Not just because we want Wally West to succeed, but also because it's a pretty damn good story. 
And that is going to do it for this week's episode. No Geeksplain mailbag this week. I didn't get any questions, so feel free to get your questions in, whether they're uh, through our social media at Pod or through email to geeksplain at gmail.com so you can have your questions featured on next week's episode. Um, I would love to know also what you thought of everything that we talked about here. Once again, uh, my list for the... Green Lanterns ranked for Sector 2814 is subjective. I would love to know what your rankings are for the Green Lanterns of this sector. Let me know if there are any Green Lanterns that you were surprised to find out about that uh, you discovered through this list. Once again, Daniel Young needs to have his own story. I would love that. I would love to see Daniel Young again. But, um, like I said, I've always been a Kyle Rayner guy. He's always been my go-to. Um, if I had to recommend a recent comic about him, if you want to, you know, read more adventures with him or just check out just a really good story, uh, check out Omega Men, written by Tom King. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite Green Lantern stories. It's amazing. Uh, Kyle Rayner is the lead in that, and it's kind of. Um, trying to it's basically it tells a story that i think far sector is trying to replicate about a distant galaxy a distant system a distant sector that a green lantern goes in and it becomes a lot more than they bargained for so um i love it it's one of my favorite stories from the last few years and i think you will enjoy it too if you're a green lantern fan but that is gonna do it uh stay tuned next uh, next week as we head into the last bit of November and into December we're also finishing off this decade uh, it's crazy to think about that that in two months time we're going to be in a whole new decade in 2020 so uh, look forward to some cumulative lists some uh, retrospectives in the last 10 years and that is going to take up a lot of the next few weeks as we head into the new year uh, we've also got some uh some fun stuff lined up, I think. I'm looking forward to uh, some special episodes that I'm recording with a couple special guests. So definitely look forward to that in the coming months as well. But for now, for Geek Explained, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time.